Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Kenny Albert. Kenny is the most versatile broadcaster in North America, the only sportscaster who currently does play-by-play for all four major professional sports leagues, the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NHL. You could say Kenny's skills came naturally as he learned seemingly by osmosis from a trio of legendary play-by-play men in his own family, his father Marv and his uncle Steve and Al. More than 3,000 broadcasts later, over 30-plus years of working with more than 250 different analysts, Kenny has amassed countless stories from the world of sports and media that he has put together in his brand-new memoir, out October 10th, but available for pre-order now, entitled A Mic for All Seasons. Welcome, Kenny, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? I am great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I am at home in northern New Jersey, not too far outside Manhattan. And uh, look forward to chatting with you. Excellent. Well, I have caught you apparently in a rare moment of stillness and motionlessness between uh, traveling to your various sports assignments. Oh, uh, you have. The summer is a little quieter than uh, October through May, for example. I do have a baseball assignment this Saturday down in Arlington, Texas, but uh, home pretty much all week. So uh, nice to get some downtime during the summer months. Excellent. And if I may ask about your family, I understand you have one daughter who actually works for the NHL and another daughter who is still on the payroll, as we say. Well, both somewhat on the payroll still, but uh, no, you're right. My older daughter, Amanda, is doing a great job at the NHL. She's a video editor slash producer. And our younger daughter, Sydney, is uh, a junior at the University of Wisconsin. So I'm not sure kids are ever off the payroll totally, but uh, we're certainly happy to help out. Excellent. Well, let's start with the obvious. Congratulations on your memoir. The book is now done. It's a real thing you can actually hold in your hands. How exciting is that? It's so exciting. And as we speak, I'm actually awaiting uh, the first copies, which I will be able to hold in my hand over the next few days, hopefully today, definitely by the end of the week, they tell me. So very excited. I've seen the electronic version, went through uh, months and months of edits and changes and you know, the entire process. It's my first time. So I was learning uh, what goes into writing a book, editing a book, getting the final product out there. But it was a lot of fun. Always thought about doing it. I feel like I have a lot of stories that I tell on interviews such as this one. When I speak to high school and college broadcasting students, they always ask such great questions, which lead to many of my stories. And I finally decided uh, my family prodded me a little bit as well, wanted to put it down on paper. And during the pandemic three years ago, when we were all home uh, for months and months, uh, I figured that was a good time to start. So I put together an outline and some sample chapters, portions of sample chapters. And a book agent, Andrew Blauner, wound up connecting me with a publisher, Triumph Books. And as they say, the rest is history. Submitted it last September 1st. So just about a year ago, uh, submitted the first version, the first manuscript, and went through the editing process, like I said, and uh, expecting to see and hold the first copy sometime this week. That's going to be great. And I know you're very proud you did not use a ghostwriter. You did indeed write it yourself, along with some excellent editing from both your wife and your daughters. I did and did have a lot of help from them as well. They did a terrific job uh, with some suggestions for stories and with the editing process. I initially had spoken to a couple of writers, thought about potentially using a ghostwriter, but in the end, I decided that 
Uh, first of all, I enjoy writing. I did a lot of writing in high school and college for the school papers and the local newspaper in the town where I grew up on Long Island. And I decided it's my stories, my voice, and wanted to write it myself. And initially, after I put together the outline, I started writing basically 13 or 14 separate chapters. And, you know, that helped me with the organization of it. And then finally realized sometime in 2022, I have to kind of tie this all together. So I merged all the files. So now I had everything in one file and made a lot of changes and moved things around. And and with help from the editors, obviously, they were also involved in the process. But it was a lot of fun uh, chronicling my early life, entry into the world of sportscasting, uh, first job professionally with the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League, some great stories from those days. And then into uh, the Fox years, which started with the NFL in 1994, coming back home to work for Madison Square Garden in 95, doing radio for the Rangers and part-time television work for the Knicks. And then there's a chapter on each sport and stories about favorite games and memorable moments and chapter about the analysts I've worked with, over 250, I might hold the record, in that category a chapter about travel tales and some uh, crazy stories I've had trying to get from point A to point B, a lot about family, chapter about the Olympics, the the eight Olympics I've worked, six winter, two summer, uh, a chapter about the pandemic and how we broadcasted games during those years. So hopefully it's enjoyable for the readers. A lot of stories that I really you know love to get out there. So uh, can't wait for people to read it. You really covered such a variety. I know you love the variety of sports, but what I want to ask with regards to the forwards to your book, they were written by two people who you worked very closely with, Walt Clyde Fraser and the great one himself, Wayne Gretzky. Kenny, of all the greats you worked with, why did you ask these two sports legends to write forwards to your book? Well, first of all, such a huge honor for both Wayne and, and Clyde to participate. You know, when I look at their names, I've seen a copy of the cover and it's it's kind of surreal that, that they... Uh, wrote the forwards for my book. My initial idea was to ask one person that I've worked with from each of the four sports, uh, football, hockey, basketball, and baseball. It turns out I was told that that might be a little too much clutter for the cover with four names. It might stand out a lot more with with the two names, which I agree with. So uh, the two gentlemen who wound up uh, participating, um, both on my color analyst list, Clyde Frazier, I work about 15 to 20 Knicks games with him every year for the last 12 or 13 years. And Wayne, I knew a little bit when he played for the Rangers back in 96 through 99. And he would often come up and sit near the broadcasters and chat with primarily John Davidson, but we were all flies on the wall on those flights. And he's such a gentleman, as you know, and uh, I got to know him a lot better the last couple of years as one of my colleagues on the NHL on TNT. And he and the entire crew travel on occasion to opening night to the Winter Classic during the playoffs. So got to know each other a lot better. And uh, like I said, was just so honored when when both Wayne and Clyde agreed to take part in the two forwards and, and such an honor to have their names on the front cover. Let's please go all the way back, Kenny. Get the Kenny Albert background story. Born 1968 in New York City and raised on Long Island. On your fifth birthday, you were given a tape recorder, which was followed by a youth spent calling games in your bedroom to a fictitious audience. That's uh, absolutely true. My fictitious radio station, WKGA, my initials KGA, 
as you referred to, grew up in a family of sportscasters, my father and my two uncles. So it's all I ever really knew from, from my first memories. I was watching games. I was going to games. It was so great just being able to tag along and uh, started announcing games, like you said, into the tape recorder, set up my room like a radio studio. I had my desk and then the bed in the middle and the small TV on the other side. And I would call games into the tape recorder. I would make up fictitious games with actual rosters of NHL teams. When I was old enough, I would start bringing the tape recorder to Madison Square Garden, Shea Stadium, find an empty area, and actually call games into the tape recorder. Well, one of my biggest breaks, which I write about in the book, when I was in 10th grade, so January 84, right before turning 16, uh, a, a small local cable station, Cox Cable of Great Net from a neighboring town, came to my high school to film a girls' basketball game. And I was there covering it for the school newspaper. I introduced myself to the producer, the late Roy Menton, and they did not have a, announcers. They had two cameras and a little production van, and that was it. So I volunteered to announce the game. They clipped a microphone onto my shirt. I sat in the third row behind the team bench and announced the game for them. I spoke with Roy the next day, and he gave me the opportunity over the next two and a half years to call probably 75 to 100 games on Cox Cable, high school, local Division three college games, any sport you can imagine, basketball, football, hockey, baseball, lacrosse, soccer. I would bring friends along as color analysts, and it was such an unbelievable experience because back then, kids my age really couldn't do that until they got to college. So I had about a two-and-a-half-year head start getting actual reps, calling games. Uh, went on to NYU. We had a great Division three men's and women's basketball program, so my friends and I called the games there. And by virtue of going to college in New York, uh, made some connections, uh, met some people, had some internships, and that led to filling in on four games of play-by-play on radio my senior year of college for the New York Islanders. And I was able to use that tape. You know, normally wannabe play-by-play broadcasters get a minor league job first and then use that tape to potentially move up to the NHL. In my case, I had this NHL tape from an Islanders-Winnipeg game in December 89 and sent that around to minor league teams and wound up getting hired by the Baltimore Skipjacks in the summer of 1990. Again, a huge break. Was there for two years uh, doing everything you can imagine uh, for the club, public relations, sales, marketing. But my main gig was doing the radio and and getting those reps for two years, riding the bus, you know, six, eight-hour, 10-hour bus rides. And one of my favorite stories in the book, I was 22 when I got hired in Baltimore. Our assistant coach was a 26 or 27-year-old by the name of Barry Trotz. And we were assigned to room together on the road to save money. They had the radio guy room with the assistant coach. So for two years, Barry and I shared a hotel room. And uh, he's such a great person. Learned so much from him, both about hockey and, and life in general. And I won't give away the story, but I was set up as a prank. Uh, there was a fake arrest that they would pull on somebody every year. So when we landed in Sydney, Nova Scotia at the start of a road trip, uh, I was the victim set up by Barry Trotz, and he still talks about it to this day, 30-plus years later, whenever I run into him. Well, it's a great professional start with the American Hockey League's Baltimore Skipjacks, as you note. But, Kenny, let's not skip over your bona fides on the ice. You did graduate from NYU, New York University in 1990, but you did score the very first goal in the history of the NYU Ice Hockey Club on a rink that was on the 16th floor of a midtown Manhattan building, no less, just blocks from your beloved Madison Square Garden. 
Kenny, did you have Gretzky Lake skills back then? Definitely not. But that is a true score uh, story. And I've actually mentioned to Wayne that I scored the first goal in NYU history. He was quite impressed. He actually has a, a son that goes to NYU now. Again, by great fortune, my freshman year, I was walking around through one of the buildings at NYU and there was a flyer on the wall. A fellow student was thinking about starting a club hockey team. And I had played in high school, played growing up, and I figured that was the end of my hockey career aside from pickup games. And uh, this student by the name of Matthew Nafis called a meeting. I attended the first meeting and uh, a bunch of us helped found uh, the NYU hockey team in 1986. And I was probably a third line winger, but... uh, Somehow scored the first goal, a wrist shot from the right wing circle that somehow got through a maze of about seven players who were screening the goalie. I didn't score many, but I did score the first. And with your parents in the crowd, I understand. They were. Uh, there weren't too many people there. I had some friends there as well. Sky Rink, the old uh, Sky Rink on the 16th floor, as you mentioned, on 33rd Street between 9th and 10th Avenue in Manhattan. It was a great rink. You know, so many memories there, but there weren't stands. It was just the rink, basically. So all of the fans who were there were just standing around the outside of the glass watching the game. Only in New York, as they say. Only in New York. Play-by-play for the NHL on NBC. You started by filling in for the legendary Mike Doc Emrick and then took over for him after his retirement in 2020. But you actually first started working with him, providing stats way back in the mid to late 80s. Right. I got to know Doc back then when he was one of the fill-ins on Rangers Radio, and I was working as the statistician. And then our, our paths crossed uh, when I was doing minor league hockey in Baltimore. Doc lived in Hershey, so he would show up at some of the games at Hershey, Pennsylvania. They were our biggest rivals, the Hershey Bears. We played them 14 times a year, seven home, seven away because of the proximity. Hershey and Baltimore about 90 minutes apart. And then uh, when I moved on to the NHL, started with the Rangers in 95 as well. Well, the Capitals, 92 to 95. But then the same year I started with the Rangers in 95, uh, Fox acquired the rights to the NHL. And I've been doing football for Fox for a couple of years. So Doc was hired as the number one play-by-play broadcaster for the NHL on Fox. And I was one of the others on the team. So we worked uh, five years of Fox games, not together. We were always in a different game, but we were colleagues. And then, ironically, uh, my first foray into Olympic broadcasting was in 2002, about 10 days before the start of the Salt Lake Games. I received a phone call that Doc had to pull out. He and his wife uh, are animal lovers. They have several dogs and horses through the years, and uh, his dog got sick. And Doc did not want to leave his wife, Joyce, home alone for two and a half weeks with the sick dog. So I wound up filling in for Doc at the Salt Lake Olympics which is a huge thrill at the last minute. And then, like I said, I've worked seven Olympics since. Uh, We were colleagues with the NHL and NBC. And then uh, when he retired prior to the 2021 season, I did call the Stanley Cup final that year. We had both worked the bubble games together, or simultaneously, I should say, in in 2020. Uh, I was actually in Edmonton. Doc was calling them from his house in Michigan. And then I called the Cup final in 2021. And then myself, Eddie Olchek, uh, Keith Jones all wound up getting hired by TNT, and we called the Stanley Cup final uh, this past year, Vegas and Florida. Uh, Jones is now on to a new role as president of the Flyers. And breaking news today, Brian Boucher joins us on the crew. Uh, we all worked with him for years at NBC. Excellent. Well, there's always someone good to step in when needed. Kenny, you note when 
Doc Emmerich retired. You called two of the last three Stanley Cup finals, 21 and 23, on national TV as you rotate coverage with your colleagues at ESPN. But you just alluded to your perhaps biggest hockey broadcasting challenge, and this was living and working for 37 days in the COVID bubble in Edmonton in 2020. You actually dedicate a chapter in your book to this. Right. Uh, you know, there were certainly a lot of stories uh, during those COVID years about how we did the broadcasts, uh, the testing that, you know, we would do frequently just to be allowed to to enter the various arenas. 37 days at Edmonton, and looking back, obviously, we weren't there for a good reason. Uh, there was a you know worldwide pandemic going on. But uh, from a broadcasting and hockey standpoint, I loved it. It was great. You know, once we were in the bubble, it was basically just players, coaches, team management, league officials, uh, the on-ice officials, and the broadcast crews. And that was it. We were calling games in the empty building up in Edmonton. And on many days, I worked two games a day, two playoff games a day. And on two occasions, Pierre McGuire and I called three games in one day. So when else is that going to happen? So for us, it was great. We, we felt like we were as safe as anyone in North America because we were inside the bubble, which was a 10-foot fence surrounding the arena and two hotels. We were tested every day, 37 straight days in my case, and we were able to eat at the four or five restaurants uh, with each other um, that were inside the bubble. So, you know, the fact that I called two game sevens in a second round Western Conference uh, playoff in one day, Dallas, Colorado, and, and Vancouver, Vegas, you know, when will that ever happen again? And th- like I said, the, the, the two three game days were just incredible memories. Uh, a good memory of a bad time, but you have been on NBC's Olympics coverage as a play-by-play announcer for men's and women's ice hockey at every Winter Olympic game since 2002. You covered Salt Lake City, Turin, Vancouver, Sochi, South Korea, Beijing. Because this is a Canadian podcast, I will give my audience a trigger warning that I am about to ask Kenny for his memories covering the U.S. women's hockey gold medal winning shootout at the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. Well, I'll balance it out, Andrew. I'll mention first that I was at the gold medal game in 2010 when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal. I was sitting right behind Doc Emmerich and Eddie Olchek. I was not working the game, but I was at that game. So I'll lead off with that. And that certainly, even though I'm American, that was a memorable moment. You know, one of the top sporting events that I've ever witnessed being in the building. I remember how quiet it got when Parisi scored in the last minute. You could hear a pin drop. And then the building erupted when when Sydney scored the goal in overtime. So uh, I'll lead off with that. Hopefully that softens the blow. But um, also on my list of memorable games I called was the gold medal game in 2018 in Pyeongchang, the shootout between the United States and Canada. Now, I'll also mention I called the women's gold medal games won by Team Canada in 2002 and then in 2022. Uh, we called those games off a monitor in Stanford, Connecticut during the pandemic. But um, I did call two Canadian gold medal winning games as well. Well, there's one thing you can count on. Canada versus the U.S. in hockey, men's and women's, every time it's going to be a battle. You have, Kenny, been the longtime radio voice of the New York Rangers since 1995. But I actually want to start by asking you about 1994, when you were actually in the booth working the national radio broadcast for the NHL. Under the leadership of Mark Messier, the New York Rangers finally broke their 54-year Stanley Cup drought by beating the Vancouver Canucks. Not only was that Stanley Cup final memorable because it featured your two favorite teams, the Rangers and the Canucks, but you also met your wife Barbara after Game 5 
Talk about the importance of the 1994 Stanley Cup Finals. Well, that was another, you know, real fortunate confluence of events. Howie Rose, the great play-by-play announcer here in New York, who was with the Rangers for many years on the radio side, and then the Islanders on television, and still, you know, future Hall of Fame voice of the New York Mets. He had worked the NHL uh, radio call of the Stanley Cup Final in 93 with Mike Keenan, the LA Montreal series. And I was working in Washington at the time doing Capitals hockey and, and radio updates at WTOP, all news station that did sports updates twice an hour. So I was at the radio station one day in May, and it's the middle of the Rangers Devils conference final. And I had been following the series, watching the games on television down in DC. And I received a phone call asking whether I would be interested, that's how they phrased it, interested in working the Stanley Cup final at NHL radio if the Rangers got there because Howie would have his commitment with the Rangers on the radio side. So obviously jumped at the opportunity. As it turns out, it was the Rangers and Canucks. The Canucks were my favorite team as a kid growing up in New York. Uh, For some reason, I became a Canucks fan 3,000 miles away. And my father was the longtime radio voice of the Rangers, so they were my other favorite team. So here are my two favorite teams on a collision course for the Stanley Cup final. And at 26 years old, if the Rangers won and got there, I would have the opportunity to call the game. So at that point, now I'm I'm rooting so heavily for the Rangers because it affected me personally. And when Matteau scored that goal in double overtime in game seven, uh, you know, I went crazy in my apartment down in Rockville, Maryland. And then, as you mentioned, after game five, the Rangers were up 3-1. Everybody in New York thought the cup was going to be won that night. And it turns out the Canucks had other ideas. And a friend of mine, Jerry Coleman, longtime sports radio broadcaster in Baltimore, was in New York doing some voiceover work. And he had mentioned to me that he was going to dinner with three of his friends, three female friends from college. They all went to Ithaca College together in upstate New York. And if the Rangers had won game five, I probably would have stayed at MSG, got to a Stanley Cup party. They lost. So from a pay phone, this is before cell phones, I called Jerry, the number he had given me for one of his friend's apartments where he would be. And sure enough, it was the apartment of uh, Barbara Wolf, who wound up, uh, is now my wife of 27 years. And I met her for the first time that night, went up to her apartment to meet my friend Jerry, uh, met her for the first time. And then uh, we wound up... uh, I went back to Vancouver for game six. I knew she was a basketball fan. So when I got back into town, I had an extra ticket to a Knicks-Houston game in the NBA Finals. So I actually invited her to that game. But after that, we really didn't communicate for about four months and then wound up speaking again around November and the rest is history. But uh, if the Rangers had lost that game or had won that game five, we probably would not have met. Life takes crazy turns. What a lucky break for you. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Kenny Albert, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Michael Landsberg, Gord Martineau, Jesse Fuchs, Jerry Dobson, Nelson Melman, John Shannon, Terry O'Reilly, Rick Campanelli, and Ted Wallachin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. When Turner Sports took over the rights in the 21-22 season, you joined the TNT crew. You now work, as noted, alongside the great one, Wayne Gretzky. You had your picture taken with him when you were 16. You covered him as a player with the Rangers. You worked alongside him in the broadcasting booth at the 2022 Outdoor Heritage Classic game in Hamilton between the Sabres and our Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, Wayne did not particularly do well as either a hockey coach 
nor as an executive. How is he doing as a broadcaster? Well, I think he's done a great job as a broadcaster. He he just has such a great uh, rapport with with the uh, you know fellow studio analysts that he works with. It's like the old E.F. Hutton commercials. When Wayne Gretzky talks, you listen. His stories are incredible. His recall. I've had the pleasure of you know going to a number of lunches and dinners uh, with Wayne and some of the others, and uh, he remembers a lot of the the games he played in, the goals he scored milestones reached by other teammates like it was yesterday he's one of my favorite people to be around he's he's just a regular guy you know if you if you bumped into him on the street and didn't know who he was uh you would just think he's the friendliest man you've ever met that you've ever run into so an honor to be part of the team with him and he's done a terrific job you know he's been with us uh, on the road during the conference final last year the stanley cup final this year was in the booth with us for that heritage classic so hopefully he's uh, a colleague of ours at Turner Sports for many, many years to come because hearing his stories never get old. Well, when you were in Hamilton, Kay, I have to ask, did you participate in the coffee cult that is Tim Hortons? Uh, I'm not a coffee person, but I, I do like the bagels at Tim Hortons. Um, I probably have drank less than two cups of coffee in my life. I've tasted coffee, but always love a, a bagel or a donut from Tim's. Excellent. Well, one of the things that you love about your job, clearly, is the variety of different sports you get to cover. October is your absolutely favorite month as your sporting worlds do collide. And in fact, you have famously covered four different sports in four days. Is that thrilling or uh, exhausting? It's more thrilling than exhausting. You know, I've had a number of instances, mostly in October, where I've called four sports within the course of a week or 10 days. Uh, there was one year, 2019, where I actually had five sports in the span of about three weeks, boxing included. Um, I love when all the sports uh, intersect during my normal you know, work schedule every year, October, November, December. I'm working football, hockey, and some basketball as well. So I have a lot of weeks where I might have three different sports in the course of a week. But uh, during the instant you mentioned there were four, and it's a lot of fun. Um you know, I, I'm a big over-preparer, so I try to uh, prepare for each and every game. I start on the early side. You have to really be organized. I get a lot of work done on on airplanes and in Ubers and taxis and hotels. So it's actually not as hard as you think preparing for all those events because normally on the road there is more time than when you're at home and you're running around and, and uh, there might be some, you know, distractions, appointments you have to get to at home. So I usually tend to get more work done when I'm away from home. Now, you also have experience calling sports without a ball or puck. You have covered, of course, boxing, track and field, numerous Olympic sports. But I also understand, Kenny, you have done the play-by-play for both a dog show and a robotics competition. Right. I was a guest public address announcer for both. Uh, the dog show was in Baltimore when I worked minor league hockey there. And the robotics competition was actually, I was asked by uh, Roy Menton, who I mentioned earlier, who was the producer from Cox Cable who hired me in high school. One of his kids was involved in this robotics competition. So I had great people feeding me notes on those two events to help me out with, with what to say over the PA mic. Um, I tell the story in my book, the one event, the one sport that I felt like I had no idea what I was watching as I was calling it was a college wrestling event back in the mid-90s. I had done a lot of research and, and talked to an Olympic wrestler, Jeff Blatnick, on the phone and watched prior wrestling events. Fortunately, I had a real good color analyst because once the match started, I would give the name, the age, the record, the hometown of, of every particular wrestler. But 
uh, once they started grappling, I really had no clue. Well, you're always up for a challenge. I don't want you to believe too much in the stereotype of Canadians only talking hockey. So let's talk some baseball. Uh, Kenny, you were the play-by-play announcer for the 2015 American League Division Series between the Texas Rangers and our Toronto Blue Jays. In Game 5, in the top of the seventh inning, you helped explain the rule regarding the air throw by Jays catcher Russell Martin that resulted in Texas scoring the go-ahead run. And then, of course, in the bottom of that very same seventh inning, you called Jose Bautista's go-ahead home run, which was capped off by that very memorable, very iconic bat flip. Now, this is top of mind for us here in Toronto as Jose was just added to the team's level of excellence. And past podcast guest, the absolutely beloved former manager, John Gibbons, came all the way up from South Texas to celebrate all things Jose. Kenny, this is probably the most asked about call from your lengthy career. What do you remember about Game 5 of that 2015 ALDS in Toronto? What an inning. We are tied at three. Oh, what a game, huh? What an inning. The seventh inning to this point has taken 40 minutes. Runners on the corners, two outs. One one for Tyson. Batista with a drive. Deep left field. No doubt about it. You know, it's ironic. Of all the hockey and football games I've done, uh, more than baseball, it's, it is the one call that I get asked about the most, uh, the Bautista home run and bat flip. You know, I remember so much about that day, and if I'm not mistaken, it was rule 3.14, I think. Fortunately, you know, I study the rule books in all the sports, but, you know, it's hard to memorize everything, and luckily I had some great people around me that I give big assist to on that. My analysts, Harold Reynolds and Tom Verducci, and statistician and jack-of-all-trades Ben Bolma, who actually had the rule book with him and got to it pretty quickly. So between the four of us, um, you know, I can't take full credit. have to give 25% to each of the four for explaining that rule. But just the emotion in the building that day, the passion of the fans, uh, that seventh inning, which I think took 53 minutes, all the craziness that took place, um, is something I'll never forget. It's an incredible moment in our uh, baseball history. And as I say, it just came up again. Let's briefly also talk some football. Congrats, Kenny. You are heading into your 30th season of the NFL on Fox. Where are you in the preparation cycle for the upcoming NFL season? Hard to believe it's 30 years. Uh, so many of us, Andrew, were in the right place at the right time when Rupert Murdoch won the rights to the NFC package back in 1993, December 93, leading into the 94 season. And Fox hired the Hall of Famers, John Madden and Pat Summerall for their top crew. And then Dick Stockton and Matt Millen on the number two crew, and they decided to take a chance on four really young play-by-play broadcasters. And I'm proud to say that uh, I'm heading into year 30. Joe Buck's had a Hall of Fame career now at ESPN. Kevin Harlan's had an unbelievable career. And Tom Brenneman was at Fox for 25-plus years, did a great job. So year 30, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's more than half my life. We'll start out Jacksonville at Indianapolis week one. I have started the preparation, have a great crew. Jonathan Vilma is my color analyst for the fourth straight year. Shannon Spakes on the sidelines. But I've worked with so many. I list all of my color analysts in the book. And at Fox, my full-time analysts have been Ron Pitts, Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz, uh, Tim Green, Brian Baldinger, and then Moose Johnston and Tony Saragusa for eight incredible years together, Hall of Famer Rondé Barber, and now uh, Jonathan for the fourth year. So 
been so lucky, you know, as far as the production crews and the analysts that I've worked with. Also uh, did some games with Troy Aikman and John Lynch and Charles Davis when they were at Fox. So had the opportunity to work in all sports with many of the best analysts in the business, whether John Davidson in hockey, Eddie Olchek, Pierre Maguire, Brian Boucher, Joe Micheletti, Keith Jones on hockey, uh, Tim McCarver on baseball, Walt Clyde Frazier on, on basketball. The list just goes on and on. Well, like you say, it's got to be a record. Over 250 different analysts over your career. Now, Kenny, when you talk about Rupert Murdoch and you talk about Fox, I would be remiss if I did not note that you were with Fox when they covered the NHL in the 1990s. Do you have any responsibility for the glowing puck tail known as Fox Tracks? Well, that was David Hill's baby. And, you know, I know it took some criticism, but it was ahead of its time. You know, you watch golf broadcasts now and other sports and you see similar technology. So David was about, you know, 20, 25 years ahead of his time. And my thought back then was if it helped people follow the puck, great. And if you didn't need it to follow the puck, then don't worry about it. But a lot of memories from those Fox years uh, working with Dennis Potvin and Terry Chris, uh, the late Peter McNabb, uh, so many other great analysts, Craig Simpson among his first broadcasts, were with us uh, on the NHL on Fox. So uh, a lot of memories from those days. The day Wayne Gretzky played his last game, April 18th, 1999, I was working a Fox game with Peter McNabb, Flyers, and Bruins in Philadelphia, drove back to New York and made it back to Wayne's party uh, up at Windows on the World in the World Trade Center. So got to celebrate even though I wasn't at that game. That's great. Well, Fox Tracks was contentious especially here in Canada. But as you know, if it helps, great. If it doesn't, you could just ignore it. There is an adage in the sports broadcasting world that the team you're cheering for is whomever can win the fastest. After all these years of having to objectively call a game, can you cheer or do you even have the ability to cheer for one team over another? You know, I think we all just root for a close game and uh, magical moments at times, you know, like such as the Bautista home run, uh, this year, I called that crazy Patriots-Raiders game in Las Vegas with uh, the laterals and the Chandler Jones interception as time ran out. So, you know, sometimes uh, on a football Sunday, yeah, maybe we're thinking about our you know flight time in the back of our mind and you don't necessarily want the game to go, you know, full overtime, for example. But, you know, on the national broadcast, we're not rooting for anybody, no matter what the fans of, of either team think. Um, you know, I'm in a unique position, as are many other play-by-play announcers, in that I also call Rangers and Knicks games. Um, I don't do national basketball, so it's not really an issue. But when I do a national game involving the Rangers, I definitely have to remind myself to call the game 50-50 and get just as excited when the opposition scores as when the Rangers do. And we've seen that through the years. Doc Emmerich was the voice of the Devils. Joe Buck was the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, so many other play-by-play announcers at the national level also do local games, so there is a bit of a transition. You're such a unique position, Kenny. I have to ask you about the latest news that Penn Station, of course, is right below Madison Square Garden, and they just had another extension of five years to kind of decide how they're going to revitalize Penn Station. Do you have any thoughts on what should happen with Madison Square Garden because they're talking about having to move it, or I don't know what they're going to do to revitalize Penn Station? Well, those rumors seem to come up every couple of years. Um, you know, I love each and every time that I step into Madison Square Garden. It's the world's most famous arena. You look up at that iconic ceiling when you walk in and it never gets old. And uh, the photographs around the arena 
um, of all the big events that have taken place there, uh, whether it was the Beatles, Madonna, uh, the Pope, uh, Ali Frazier, all of the great Knicks and Rangers games. So, you know, hopefully it stays in its current location for a long, long time. And like I said, every time I walk into that building, it's, it's, uh, it's just magical. Are hiccups the arch enemy of the play-by-play man? Uh, that's happened to me on a couple of occasions. Uh, calling a Rangers game in L.A. back in the 90s, I got the hiccups uh, during play. And we have something called the cough button that we can reach for and cut off our microphone. So uh, luckily, I don't think any of the hiccups snuck out there on the air, but uh, that's one of the things that sometimes you do worry about happening as a play-by-play announcer. Well, I got another challenge for you with the continuing globalization of sports. How do you manage to keep up with name pronunciations, especially with the influx of talent we're now seeing from outside of North America? You know, that's something I've always uh, been a stickler for is pronouncing names right. And whenever I've done Olympics, you know, it gets challenging when you don't necessarily have the familiarity with the players from the other countries. But always try to get, whether it's a coach, a public relations person from a team, you know, I'll, I'll go to a player myself. In fact, for your audience, when John Tavares slash Tavares played for the Islanders for nine years, uh, his name was pronounced Tavares by by the Islanders announcers, and they all checked with him. And then when he went to the Leafs, all of a sudden I started hearing uh, people up in Toronto calling him Tavares. So I pulled him aside at MSG. He was doing his sticks one day, and we had an NBC telecast, Rangers and Leafs, and I said, John, when you introduce yourself to somebody, how do you say your name? And he laughed and he said, hi, I'm John Tavares. That's what he said to me. And then I said, can you repeat that one more time? And he said, Tavares. And I even explained the story on the air uh, about how it's been pronounced two different ways. And I asked him earlier tonight and he told me it's Tavares. Sure enough, two seasons later, uh, the Leafs put out a tweet with all the players pronouncing their own names. And now he's saying it's Tavares. So you never know. Sometimes it even, it changes with, within the individual. The Miranoff brothers, uh, one of them used to pronounce it when they were in the NHL, Miranoff. The other pronounced it Miranoff. Uh, but I specifically went up to John Tavares, and he told me that he pronounced his name Tavares before that game with MSG. I'll tell you what else that could be, Kenny. is uh, One stereotype, of course, is Canadians. We're all born with skates and play hockey. But the other trope or maybe it's a good one because we should be proud of it it's canadians are so polite they wouldn't even correct you on pronouncing their own name except in this case i asked him to pronounce his own name i didn't pronounce it either way now of course it would be difficult logistically to have two play-by-play guys doing the same game but you did manage to work two games with your dad marv a college basketball game at nyu and a hockey game at madison square garden do you still get feedback from marv who although retired i understand still watches all the sports all the time. Right. He watches a lot of TV, sports, television shows, movies. Uh, we did do a couple of games together. I brought him in during my college days, and he did an NYU game with us. And then on a couple of occasions, I worked as a sideline reporter when he was doing Westwood One NFL games on the radio. But he still checks out everything, and, and he'll give me a call and talk about a particular broadcast. You know, normally it's all positive, but just learned so much, you know, growing up watching him prepare and, and how he broadcasted games. And uh, it, it kind of soaked in via osmosis. Um, it wasn't like he sat me down and gave me a classroom lesson, but I would really learn a lot from just watching him and, and observing. Well, it's been said that your family gatherings 
with your dad, Marv, your uncles, Al, and Steve, were basically like the original all-talk sports radio station. Right. I'll take credit for that line. I've used that on a number of occasions, but it was true. When, when Al and Steve used to come over on holidays and special occasions, and the three of them would talk about the various games that they called and the teams and the athletes that they've been around, and I would sit there and soak it all in, and it really was like listening to the first all-sports radio station. This did predate uh, uh, WFAN, of course. Right, which began on July 1st, 1987. I remember listening to the first update that day. Kenny, I'm going to end with two questions that would be as tough as asking you to choose your favorite child. Number one, is your greatest love radio or TV? And number two, is your greatest love hockey, basketball, baseball, or football? You know, I get those questions a lot, and I always joke that asking someone about their favorite sport is like asking which children... Uh, which child you like the best. When I was growing up, I loved all the sports. Uh, hockey was probably a little bit ahead of the others, but not much. But I played hockey, played a little bit of basketball, baseball when I was a kid, didn't really play football. The helmet was too big. I have a big head. I have trouble with hats, and the football helmet didn't fit when I was about six or seven years old and went out for the youth football. So turned around and went home. But uh you know, as far as working, I'm mostly associated with, with football and hockey, and it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. You know, hockey, I'm working three or four games a week, summer on radio. Football, it's once a week, all on national television, millions of people watching. So love them both. You know, hate to have to choose between one or the other, but, you know, the hockey, people always tell me I sound the most excited during hockey, but that's also the nature of the sport, the speed, the quickness. When I'm on radio, it's, it just sounds like, you know, any any hockey radio broadcast sounds like such an exciting call. Love doing basketball and baseball as well. Love all the people I work with. So I'm not going to give an honest answer to the question. I love them all. As far as radio and TV, you know, I, I love them both. Right now, hockey is really the only sport I go back and forth on. Most of the football, basketball, and baseball I've done in my entire career has been TV. I've done a couple of radio games here and there in those three sports. But I, I would advise any young broadcaster to start out in radio because that's where you learn the fundamentals. You have to give such precise description versus television where the viewers can see what's going on. You have to give the score and time a lot more frequently, the inning in baseball. So it's where you really learn so much about the business and the fundamentals. Lucky that I get to do both, hockey on the radio with the Rangers and on television with TNT because I really love love and enjoy uh, so much, both mediums. Well, that's been the great success of your career. The variety of platforms, the variety of sports. As noted, October 10th is the big day when your memoir, A Mike for All Seasons, will be on store shelves, but you can pre-order today from the publisher, Triumph Books, or go wherever you like to get your books. Kenny, do you have some interesting or exciting events planned around the book launch over and above coming on this Toronto Legends podcast? Well, this is certainly a memorable one. I've enjoyed uh, enjoyed our chat. And love to do it again sometime. We're in the process of planning some events. Uh, October 9th, the day before the official publication date, we have an event, a book signing at a bookstore here in New Jersey, Bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey. We're going to have an event at the NHL store in Manhattan at some point, most likely in November. And we're still in the process of scheduling some other events based on the fact that I don't know my exact schedule yet this season for hockey and football. Uh, but I'm excited about those first couple of events that we have planned and uh, there will be many others for sure. Excellent. And of course, we'll have to get you up here to Toronto 
well, you're working to talk about the book. Where can we best follow you? Do you have a social media press? Um, I do. First of all, the book's available for pre-order on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can find it on on Google if you just put in a search. A mic for all seasons. Triumph Books is the publisher. And as far as uh, the social media, yes, I'm on Twitter, just my name, Kenny Albert. And then on Instagram, there's a one, number one at the end, Kenny Albert one. So uh, those are the two platforms I'm active on. You can usually find a photo from the broadcast booth whenever I'm working a game on Twitter. And uh, again, book available for pre-order. It's out October 10th, a mic for all seasons, MIC, and the I in mic is a microphone. So uh, a little play on words there. Excellent. Well, congratulations again on the book. And I want to thank you for your time today. It was great getting to know you and hearing some of your stories. And I want to wish you a great fall season. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to doing it again someday. It would be my pleasure too. And to the listeners, on behalf of Kenny Albert, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.